Okay, I'd like to start this panel um, so we have enough time to get through the three presentations and questions and answers. Um, I'm Mickey Levy. I am moderating this panel. I work at one of those still-too-big-to-fail institutions. Um, and so, so today's, um, today's conference is on asset bubbles and monetary policy. And we've talked about bubbles from all different angles. And, and this final panel um, is charged with preventing bubbles, um, regula regulation or monetary, or regulation versus monetary policy. And um, the three panelists, um, what they have in common is they're all extraordinarily creative economists. Um, they're all very prolific. And they also have a lot of experience in housing and housing finance. And, and so um, um, the first speaker is going to be uh, Professor Charles Calamaris, um, is professor at, at Columbia uh, University and um, also associated with the, um, the NBER. And he serves as, uh, as um, <clears throat> He co-directs the project on financial deregulation at the American Enterprise Institute and, and is, a, is a scholar there. And not anymore. And I, it's a little old, but okay. go ahead. And I would also note that in your resume, it, it refers to your past uh, affiliation with the Shadow Regulatory Committee, but not your current affiliation with it, the Shadow Monetary It's an old resume. Monetary I have policy. to update okay. this resume. <laughs> After Charlie speaks... Um, the next speaker will be David Malpass. He is president of Encima Global. It's an economic research firm, former chief economist of Bear Stearns. He's uh, currently writes regularly for uh, current events, uh, for current events column for Forbes. He also writes frequently for the Wall Street Journal and is chairman of GROPAC. It's a political organization. Um, and... Um, as you know, he uh, just uh, ran for uh, uh, Senate in the state of New York and um, um, made economists everywhere look good. <laughs> the, th the, the third speaker is Professor Lawrence J. White at NYU in the Stern School of Business. Um, took some leaves of absence earlier on. He was a member of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, um, served in, in, in the um, antitrust division of the, of the U.S. Department of Justice, and, he, and he's just um, written numerous, numerous books and, and articles on the topics at hand today. So we're going to start with, um, with uh, Professor Calamari. Thanks, Mickey. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think the topic of this panel that makes it distinct from the other panels, uh, you could find in your program, if you still have it. This is what I figured we were supposed to talk about. What are the limits of monetary policy and financial regulation? And I think what that addresses is the question of where does uh, the mission of monetary policy begin and end from the standpoint of trying to prevent bubbles, stop bubbles, where does the mission of financial regulation begin and end? 
and by which I'm going to focus on banking regulation, uh, but also I'll talk about some other things. And so that's the question I think I'm here to talk about, where those missions begin and end. That's what I take to be the point of this session. Um, and I'm going to tell you what I think the answers are. First of all, what does it mean to have a mission vis-a-vis uh, -vis bubbles? It means two things, not to create a problem and then to be able to solve one once it's created. And I think that that, by posing it that way, you can see right away the difference between monetary policy and regulatory policy. I think that the, uh, the proper analysis of monetary policy, and I'll give an example in just a minute, is that monetary policy definitely can produce asset bubbles. Uh, and the distinction Carmen Reinhardt made earlier today and that Peter Wallison made, I want to echo, which is that doesn't mean create banking crises. So my own research on the history of last 200 years of banking crises indicates that monetary policy is often uh, part of the timing of, the, of, of banking crises, but it's not a sufficient condition to create them. And I think that echoes what Carmen was saying and also what Peters was saying. Because banking crises aren't just about asset prices that fall. They're about highly levered financial systems in which the declines in asset prices produce disastrous liquidity crises, scrambles, credit crunches, and other kinds of uh, massive uh, experiences like the one we've just lived through. And the lesson of history I want you to start with me with is that that only happens if there are other microeconomic distortions in the financial system. And remarkably, what I have found is that those almost always come from government policies. Peter Wallison again gave us an example of that, and I'm going to draw on that example. In fact, some of my tables are drawn from Peter's paper, coincidentally, that he presented here. And then, uh, but I'm going to go beyond that to talk about prudential regulation too. Prudential, so I'm going to argue very simply that monetary policy's role with respect to asset bubbles is to focus on its knitting and not to get distracted by financial markets. Monetary policy should focus on the objective of price stability, and I'm not going to say much more about that because I know David's going to be on the panel and he's going to talk more about it, I think. But it shouldn't be distracted by uh, financial policy uh, why shouldn't monetary authorities try to stop bubbles? Uh, we heard from Adam Posen earlier today. It's very hard to identify them. They, there was a, a discussion by Carmen also of ignorance and arrogance as good reasons not to. But I want to tell you, we've actually had a recent example uh, of an attempt. So Colombia in, in 2007 was experiencing huge current account deficits, big credit growth, a big stock price, and uh, general asset price boom. And the central bank president saw it coming and decided to increase interest rates. And he increased interest rates 400 basis points. And he couldn't dent it. And then do you know what he did? He increased prudential regulatory requirements in the banking system substantially, capital and reserving requirements. And guess what? He stopped it. And he's now a national hero in his country because Jota uh, Uribe, because uh, he actually created a soft landing for Colombia after trying to do it with monetary policy and failing. So that, of course, is the consensus you've already heard today, which is it's very hard 
to stop, and even Alan Greenspan's made this point. It's very hard to, to figure out whether you're in an asset bubble, to stop it. And so I conclude, given that central banks don't imp- bankers don't impress me with their wonderful insights into uh, uh, the momentary circumstances of the economy on a regular basis, that they're probably left doing other things than trying to solve that problem. And the Colombian experience also tells us that we know that we can solve this problem with prudential regulation. So then the question becomes, what should we be doing? And I want to inspire you all with the wisdom of Will Rogers, who in the response to the Great Depression asked the important question, if stupidity got us into this, why can't stupidity get us out of it? And and actually, that, that's a question with a point. When you think it through, what he was really trying to say is that the reason that stupidity can't get you out of it, it might be able to get you out of it, if what the stupidity that got you into it makes you do is learn what you were doing wrong. So actually, the answer to Will Rogers' question is stupidity can get you out, that got you into it can get you out of it if it leads to learning. And so the question is, what should we have learned about prudential regulation from this crisis. Forget about whether it's a cause or anything else. What should we have learned that's going to help us make better prudential regulation? Okay, that's going to be the rest of my discussion. How much time do I have left, Mickey? Minute and a half. <laughs> you have enough time. Okay. Nine minutes. Nine minutes. Good, thank you. So, um, I got some bad news, good news. And it's the same news, which is the Dodd-Frank bill is over with. So uh, now it's up to future politicians and regulators to figure out what to do. Uh, That's bad news because there's a lot of uh, problems with the Dodd-Frank bill, and I want to say there are two kinds of problems, sins of commission, things that we really wish they hadn't done that are very harmful, and sins of omission. And I want to emphasize today the sins of omission. That's what I'm going to focus on. What is it that we'd actually like to do in prudential regulation that nobody has done yet? Um, And what I want to focus on, my Will Rogers point here is, that what we learned from this recent failure of the prudential regulatory system to stop all the losses is the same thing we've learned over and over again, which is regulation that isn't based on incentives doesn't work and that it has to focus on the incentives of two different classes of parties, the market participants and the supervisory and regulatory agents. We need to know that the market participants aren't going to take whatever rule we put out there and arbitrage their way around it, and we need to know that the supervisory agents are actually going to effectively enforce the rules that we set up. And the only way that those two agents are going to behave in those ways is if they have incentives to do so. And so I know we got all, you know, John Taylor's talking today. He had a, he had a, a rule named after him. We've had uh, people who've had theorems named after them. I, my goal as an economist is to have a scorecard named after me, which is my last slide. I want you to think of it as the Calamira scorecard. And all it does is force anybody with a new regulatory idea to answer that incentive question. What will be the incentives of this rule you're proposing of market participants to get around it? How easy will it be? And what will be the incentives of regulators as people, individuals, to actually enforce the rule that you've created? And so I'm going to give you a few ideas today from my list of 16 such ideas. I'm not going to give you them all. Uh, 
that, that work from the standpoint of incentives and that would solve a bona fide problem. So first I have to tell you what the problems are that we have to solve. I'm going to skip all this stuff about monetary policy. I can't, bear, I can't skip this. You know, we've had a lot of discussion today about monetary policy causing problems in pricing of assets. I just want to advertise Marie Harova and some other people at the ECB. I have a very nice new working paper that shows that when you put this into a vector autoregressive context and you ask, do I see that credit risk spreads narrow when the Fed funds rate is reduced? And the answer is, yes, of course. So we know, we don't know if it's, if it's a, a, an irrational response or an equilibrium response, but what we know is monetary policy makes risky assets prices higher. It doesn't just make all asset prices higher. It gooses up the risky segment of the market. This is, uh, there are about a half dozen such studies in many different countries that find the same thing. So if you want to know whether monetary policy matters for asset prices of risky assets in a way that promotes or at least leans in the direction of risky asset bubbles, the answer is yes. And you don't, you could see that either by looking at a graph like this that sees, shows that the monetary authority was definitely deviating on the loose side, or if you like simpler graphs, this that shows the negative real Fed funds rate, but the consequences, you need some econometrics. And I tried to explain this diagram to Alan Greenspan, who was not convinced by it a couple of weeks ago, but I think he should be convinced by it. What it tells us is, if you're a central bank, you have a loaded gun from the standpoint of asset pricing bubbles, and it's a good idea to try to establish rules because then the asset markets aren't going to react to the random things that you do so much. Before I get into Prudential, after having talked about monetary policy, what its limits are, I want to talk about housing policy. The key thing that the housing policy got wrong was leverage. If Fannie and Freddie and FHA had all required 20% minimum down payments, the adverse selection problems associated with no-docs lending would have been irrelevant. The, problems, the adverse selection problems associated with targeting low-income people and, without, and not checking on their uh, employment status would have been irrelevant if you had asked for 20% down payments on a mortgage. What changed from 1995 to 2005 more than any other thing was going from a 20% minimum down payment standard to a zero, effectively, or 3% minimum down payment standard. That was the mischief. So we're back at that leverage point that Carmen started the day off with. These are some graphs from Peter, and I'm going to skip them. Uh, but I do want to show you this, too. Beyond regulation, we also have some thinking to do. Because did you notice that some of the financial institutions in the world, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, uh, BBV, Santander, Credit Suisse, didn't have such big problems in this crisis? Others. Citibank, UBS, Lehman, Bear Stearns, they did have these problems. So there's a recent study I was the discussant of by Elul and Yermili, and guess what they did? They went and looked at trying to see what distinguishes the ones that had bad outcomes from good outcomes, and they found one variable distinguishes it more than anything else. Guess what it is? It's this thing, CRO centrality. Sounds very scientific. What did they do? They looked at the ratio of the salary of the chief risk officer to the salary of the chief executive officer. 
What do you think? Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. It explains why Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse are doing one set of things and others are doing something very different. And we want to bring that insight, which is not about regulation. That's about man- governance of, of institutions. We want to bring that insight back into our regulatory thinking about market participants and regulators' incentives. And I want to emphasize, I think we have two problems. One of them is our regulatory framework doesn't measure risk and budget capital accordingly. I want to say it again. We're not on a forward-looking basis credibly and accurately measuring risk and budgeting capital to absorb shocks from that risk accordingly. That's problem number one. Problem number two, we have a too-big-to-fail problem. And Dodd-Frank, of course, has made it much worse by institutionalizing bailouts now, giving the bureaucrats and the politicians an even easier low-cost path of least resistance for bailouts. These are our two problems. So uh, I'm going to talk very briefly, because I see my time is low. I'm just going to talk about a few ideas. Idea number one, use loan interest rate spreads, the the loan all-in cost over the relevant treasury uh, rate, to measure risk when, from a regulatory standpoint, budgeting capital. Uh, guess what? This works in countries that have done it, and there have been studies, one published in 2003 by New York Fed economists, showing how this could be done and showing that it would have worked, that it, that it would work. If only we had listened to Don Morgan in 2003. Is this something that you're going to arbitrage very easily? No, you're not going to arbitrage it because the, the bank isn't going to lower its interest cost to save a, by a dollar its interest revenues by a dollar to save a nickel's worth of cost on its capital requirements. And so this is a pretty robust measure. Is it easy to enforce? Yes. And therefore, easy to hold supervisors accountable for enforcing? Yes. So it passes my incentive filter, my incentive scorecard test. Number two, reform the ratings agencies. Key thing to understand is the distortions coming from buy side. The buy side wants ratings to be exaggerated in a favorable way because the buy side gets the regulatory advantage in, uh, of that exaggeration. So that's why ratings agencies ex- exaggerate, because the buy side asks them to. And there's a lot of evidence of this. We've had literature on this since 1995. I've contributed to it. We knew about this before the crisis. What can we do about it? Um, how about this? Make anyone who's an NRSRO, a nationally recognized statistical ratings organization, Make, allow free entry into that. Have the SEC, though, say that triple B means a 2% five-year default probability. And the SEC's job is to establish standard errors for that 2%. And if using a three-year moving average, you can see I'm moving quickly in my talk here, if using a three-year moving average of actual default experience, it turns out that you're more than two standard errors above 2% then you need to go and recalibrate your model. And that means you're going to have a sit-out for a few months, and that means no fees on that class of instruments for a few months while you figure it out. Triple B of CDOs at December 2005 had a historical five-year default probability of 20%. That's the year before, triple, that's the year before CDOs exploded on the up direction in terms of issuance. Triple B corporates... December 2005 had a five-year default probability of 2%. That was the experience before the crisis. 
In other words, we need to create numbers, not letters, and we need to hold people to account and give them real incentives based on their own fees for actually being accurate. This isn't hard. And by the way, Barbara Boxer tried to get this added to the Dodd-Frank bill because her staff liked my idea. Uh, the buy side lobbied very hard against this. Those are two ideas. I wanted to say one, one other idea, and then I, Mickey's uh, pulling the, the hook on me. Uh, I'm not going to get to all of my ideas. Uh, a third idea is to establish credible contingent capital certificates. That's a complicated thing to show. The basic idea is when banks have any significant loss in their positions measured using market values of their equity, any significant loss, they are, have a very strong incentive to go back to the capital markets and replace it before it gets to be too large. How do we create that incentive? That's a longer story, but I believe it can be done. I'm going to stop there because uh, turned out that I didn't have all the time I, I'd hoped. But I just want to emphasize, this is what I think we need to do with regulations. I've given, I have in my paper five proposals. Those proposals all have to pass an incentive test. Will it work if market participants try to get around it? Will it, will it actually have the political incentives for people to enforce it? If we think that way about regulatory reform, Basel III is a joke, just as Basel II and Basel I were, but these are ideas that aren't a joke if we're serious about doing it. The politics of bank lobbying and of other kinds of lobbying interests often oppose it. John, and I is think this called the Calamiris scorecard? It is called today oh. and forevermore the Calamiris scorecard. Thank you very much. What? Uh, no, David. Let's get rid of my thing. At the back of this, I have the Malpass, I forget what I'm going to call it, the Malpass menu. Because um, Charlie's on to something here. Okay, let's see. Oops, that was the wrong way. Uh, hi, everybody. Hello, Mickey, and uh, thank you to Cato for, uh, for a chance to talk with you today. I'm David Malpass. My, slides, uh, my presentation is, in a way, in the reverse order. I'm going to talk about current events and then talk a little bit about the history, my way of thinking about bubbles, uh, and then have some policy, my idea of policy prescriptions. Um, the, the, as we think about the Fed right now under quantitative easing, one of the things that uh, comes out to me is to, uh, a reminder that the Fed itself doesn't really create money. Money is created by banks as they leverage up. And so as people think about the Fed uh, um, uh, printing or creating money, I, I use, I'm using this just to show you that they actually moved in a different direction in, the, in 2009 as the Fed was buying MBS meaning rapidly expanding its uh, balance sheet, uh, the commercial banks were, were uh, declining in terms of the size of their balance sheet. And so the, the uh, question for us in, in uh, whether the Fed will create a bubble this time around is whether those reserves will be utilized. Um, my view is that if you have good regulation of financial institutions, along with a commitment to sound money by the central bank, that uses forward-looking uh, indicators of the soundness of their money, then 
uh, the asset bubbles are, are not something that has to be addressed through monetary policy, that the markets are going to have to address them. So the times that where we have asset bubble problems have been, in my view, when we either didn't have good uh, financial institution regulation or we didn't have sound money at the core of the central bank's goals. Where we stand right now is the velocity of money has uh, collapsed, uh, and all that means is that we have shifted um, shifted from a uh, reserve-constrained or, or a, a Fed funds rate-constrained environment to very much a regulatory-constrained environment, meaning that the excess asset, the excess reserves are being put onto the Fed's balance sheet and, uh, and yet not being utilized by the banks, so you don't get growth, much growth, in M2. Um, so I'm, I'm going to address, using this slide directly, the letter that, uh, that I, uh, we did early this week on Monday to, the, to Bernanke asking them to reconsider the asset, uh, uh, the asset purchases that the Fed's doing. So I want to make very clear, it's not a hit on the Fed's independence. Many of us on that letter are very strong supporters of Fed independence. I don't think it's a communication problem by the Fed. The Fed uh, is uh, uh, saying, well, maybe if we had explained better what we were doing with the, the uh, asset purchases, then people wouldn't be reacting that, this way. This is a problem, the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet that people have been talking about for a long time. John Taylor mentioned at lunch he's been on this for almost two years of trying to get them to stop going in this direction. So this isn't a communication problem by the Fed. This is an argument over the idea of, at this particular point in history, having the Fed uh, grow a really big balance sheet. They're already at $2.5 trillion and they want to go to over $3 trillion in the size of their assets sitting right here in Washington, D.C., and that's um, not necessary not appropriate for the current time in the growth uh, plan. Um, so the, the objections are that it's too big a balance sheet, uh, and it's not going to be effective in achieving the goals of uh, full employment and price stability, and it creates risks, which I'll go into next. The Fed's holdings have um, – this shows you the uh, various asset classes of the Fed's uh, asset side of their balance sheet. So MBS, you can see, are bleeding off a little bit, being made up for by increased holdings of U.S. Treasuries. Uh, the agencies are steady, though they're bleeding off a little bit as they mature. The commercial paper was used, uh, at, and, and appropriately so. The Fed used massive power to save the financial system in, in October of 2008. So the commercial paper went up, and now it's gone. So that's very appropriate, I think, in my view, use of monetary policy under total emergency situation. We don't have that now. And so the effect of what the Fed is doing is uh, shortening the duration. If you think of the consolidated balance sheet of the U.S. government, you've got the Treasury's balance sheet and the Fed's balance sheet. And in effect, the Fed is buying back the Treasuries that had been issues. The five, let's say the five-year maturity Treasuries are going down in terms of the, the, uh, the actual uh, uh, held by the public. If we start thinking of the Fed as not part of the uh, debt held by the public, then it becomes clear that the, it's just a buyback of the debt, and it's drastically shortening the duration or the maturity of the U.S. government overall debt outstanding, which has a huge risk. You're, you're taking the maturity risk of a giant national debt onto the taxpayers. And so that creates a risk uh, as the Fed tries to unwind that position. My own view, and Charlie and I have talked about this some, is that the Fed probably will hold 
those assets, those long maturity assets, almost to, uh, uh, to maturity. And so that means their excess reserves are going to be uh, bloated for a long time. Uh, and so that presents very real challenges for the operation of monetary policy, which is our concern. If the Fed were to argue that this is a, an emergency situation where the financial system is at risk or the economy is, uh, is uh, in, a, in another recession, then there might be a different answer to whether you wanted to go to really extreme monetary policy measures. Uh, but those don't hold, and the Fed shouldn't be doing this. So uh, that's, that's, where, uh, that's where I stand. I've uh, created a political organization called GrowPack.com, which is right now uh, 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 encouraging the Fed to reconsider their asset purchases as, a, uh, as an important part of good monetary policy. Uh, Okay, the, now going a little back into history, the Fed causing asset bubbles is not a new problem. Uh, remember after the 2000 uh, stock market bubble, uh, there was a huge uh, debate over whether, how the Fed contributed to, to it. My, my view is that by strengthening the dollar, uh, after the, uh, Greenspan said irrational exuberance in December of, of 1996, the dollar began strengthening, the U.S. kept raising interest rates, kind of like the Columbia situation that uh, Charlie was talking about. You, that you, you were trying to fight irrational exuberance with a higher interest rate. So the money flooded into the United States, and instead they should have been using regulatory policy. So in 1997, 1998, 1999, there should have been much clearer, to, to the extent that Greenspan was right in saying there was irrational ex exuberance in the bond market. Remember, the credit spreads had narrowed drastically as interest rates came down. Another of Charlie's points, as the interest rates were coming down, indeed the credit spreads also were coming down. And uh, uh, if that's the case, then look into the regulatory framework that was being used uh, to, to control that. Uh, instead, they kept hiking interest rates, strengthening, further strengthening the dollar. And so um, that in my view, was not resolved in 2002. There was a huge issue of how the Fed was going to deal with bubbles, and the Fed basically said, we're going to clean them up after the fact, which I don't think is a satisfactory or a, a very fulfilling uh, answer. Um, so we've gotten pretty big swings in uh, inflation. Note that in, just as an aside, in 1997, 98, uh, the inflation was falling. There, uh, in this kind of a graph, I don't see any real connection between growth causing inflation. So one of the problems we have in the current FOMC statements and so on is the implied return of that connection that somehow growth, growth is the worry that, uh, that since we don't have much growth and we have idle capacity, then therefore we can't have inflation risk right now. It, that doesn't follow to me, and I wish they were not using that to, uh, to comfort us on the size of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, it, I, this graph is, is uh, an, an important one. I'm sorry it's complicated, except the data is actually complicated. What this graph shows you is the originally, the original, you know, the core PCE deflator is the Fed's chosen indicator of inflation, and it gets revised substantially after the fact. The Fed uses it before the revisions. So in the middle of 2005, you can see that the core PCE deflator, as originally published, was only at 1.5%. So the Fed was... 
imposing a very low interest rate, Fed funds rate, at that time on the basis that inflation was low. Um, then in 2006, I, I, don't, I think you can see it, and these slides, by the way, are in your packet. The originally um, uh, published data showed a moderation in inflation in the core PCE deflator that allowed the Fed to uh, uh, repeatedly uh, uh, pat itself on the back for the moderation in inflation that it had achieved. And yet when now we see the, the current data is the top line across here, that solid blue bold line, was much higher. And so the end result of the policy in 03, 04, 05, 06 was the Fed funds rate was too low, the dollar was weakening, and we ended up indeed having a lot of inflation. It didn't moderate. Uh, and so, um, uh, and in fact, it was over the 2%. These are year-over-year -year numbers. So it was a sustained inflation uh, above 2% on the core PCE deflator, which is, uh, I think, uh, too much inflation. Uh, and so it was generated by the Fed using a backward-looking looking indicator, the core PCE deflator. Remember why it's backward-looking? They use the weightings from history of what people used to buy, and then they use the current prices on the old goods. And so it's always going, or it systematically, I think, understates the the inflation rate. So then the, the revision occurs as they find out what people actually bought, and they observe that the prices are going up on the current purchase, the actual uh, purchases that people are doing. And so this is a problem uh, as we think about uh, how the uh, avoiding bubbles in the future. Um, or asset bubbles or bad monetary policy that causes asset bubbles, one of the things that has to be resolved is the, back, the deeply backward-looking nature of inflation indicators. Uh, and yet, in the current debate, the Fed has continued to use inflation, and uh, uh, now they also use inflation expectations, but that's, uh, that's a very hard-to-measure uh, kind of quantity. Okay. Um, and so Zellick, uh, Bob Zellick on 11-8-2010, who I, I worked with at both Treasury and State, and so he t came out and said the G20 should complement its growth recovery program. The system should also consider employing gold as an international reference point of market ex for of market expectations about inflation, deflation, and future currency values. Think how dramatically different the world would be if the Fed said, boy, that's a reasonable idea. We're going to examine that. But as we know, the Fed has completely rejected that kind of concept uh, and instead uses the core PCE deflator, which is systematically lagging. Um, I threw this in. You know, I've been at this Cato conference, which is a fabulous conference, uh, on, on previous occasions. And I really think there, that we have to grapple, or I, I continue to grapple, with the problem that uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury and Fed allow an unstable currency as the fundamental basis of U.S. policy, and they should be seeking a relatively stable exchange rate over the long term. A couple more graphs. Um, inflation fears. Um, this is uh, log scale, log base 10. So, for example, 10 to the third is $1,000 gold. So you see we've, we've gone above three on this line. 10 to the second is 100 gold, which we pierced in 1974. I'm not a gold bug, but I do. it does seem to incorporate uh, people's fears of inflation. And so one of the things you can observe on this, look, look how the gold price was dead on the 10-year average during the Great Moderation, which uh, one of our previous speakers was saying ran from uh, 
uh, 82 to 97, I guess Peter Wollaston called it, which is gold going very flat across. Then it fell into deflation, now into an inflationary mode. So it's been giving, I think, correct signals. The move into deflation, where it broke below the 10-year average in 1997, was dead on the day that Greenspan said irrational exuberance was going to be how, or that he, he implied that they were going to hike interest rates to fight irrational exuberance in financial markets fighting a bubble. And so it had an impact, and it was a measurable uh, impact. I'm going to skip over the Japan. So the short story on Japan is I don't see too many parallels between Japan and the U.S. There are too many dissimilarities, one of which I'll emphasize here. This is the same 10-year graph style that I used. It's the, ten, the current spot price of gold against the 10-year moving average. And you can see Japan had a 15-year deflation period before they attempted quantitative easing. So there's really no, uh, no and here shows you Japan's CPI was negative year over year. The U.S. hasn't had anything like that. Um, okay, so this is my last slide, Mickey. Um, this is uh, just some ideas for us to discuss. I don't want to say this is, uh, this is uh, there's a lot of um, uh, debate that's gone into this. This is just some things to think about, that as we try to grapple back from, um, from the crisis of 2008, we need to state a preference for a strong and stable dollar. Instead, what the U.S. government continues doing, even last week, is saying that the currency reflects the fundamentals of the country, that we have a free-floating exchange rate reflecting our fundamentals. That's highly pro-cyclical. As your uh, fundamentals weaken, your currency weakens, and it makes your fundamentals get worse. So as long as we're using that phrase of uh, reflecting fundamentals, I think we're on the wrong path. And I'll read through these. Uh, we should wind down the Fed's Treasury purchases um, in January. Uh, that's going to be safer, better, more pro-growth, more jobs. We should gradually stop reinvesting Fed principal repayments just so we burn off some of that balance sheet. We should lower the Fed interest rate on excess reserves. Right now they're overpaying, uh, uh, and, and that would be a positive. You know, if you think of the second bullet here as being perceived negative by markets, the third one would be very positive. Um, and then use T-bills as a reference rate for that payment on excess reserves. Encourage the banks to lower their prime rates. Unwind the Dodd-Frank provisions on shortcutting bankruptcy and some of the other things there. Bank regulators should use judgment in applying gap and mark-to-market to regulatory capital. We still have the same pro-cyclicity of regulatory policy that was identified in October of 2008. You know, Paulson gave speeches on it, the head of the IMF gave speeches on it, and nobody really did anything to correct that. And in fact, I think under Basel III, we may be making it some worse. Raise the Fed, then raise the Fed funds rate gradually to 1%. I promised Jim, Jim Dorn I would... Uh, uh, mentioned to people, and I, I didn't dwell on it, but having a 0% Fed funds rate is really harmful. The interbank market isn't working. Uh, Ron McKinnon has done uh, a, a brilliant new paper, uh, yet another paper, on why the 0% rate when you're not in an emergency is not a good idea. I've attached to in the packet my article in the Wall Street Journal a year ago making this point that you, if you're not in an emergency, you can't be running, and you don't have a deflation, you can't can't be running a 0% Fed funds rate. And then 
uh, this is a controversial one. Hold back some of the Fed's profits. You know, they turn over huge amounts to Treasury. Hold it back so the Fed can build some equity cushion in preparation for bond price declines. We're at grave risk now where the Fed has very little equity capital and yet is holding a, a highly leveraged portfolio, borrowing short and lending long. And so that could be addressed by more equity at the Fed. Thank you. Get me up there. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a try. Let's see here. I don't know where your paper is. Do you so see it? It's got to be somewhere here. Why don't I see it? Um, uh, here I am. Okay. Yeah, there it is. Okay. And now. I use this to make yeah. the slideshow. Oh, yeah, okay. View show. It works every time. All right. Uh, that's the highest tech thing I know how to do. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, for this crowd, I have to say I'm the other Larry White. Uh, and um, nevertheless, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, now, the title of our program was Preventing Bubbles, Regulation versus Monetary Policy. And that was a choice I didn't like, uh, because I don't think preventing bubbles is the right uh, way to be uh, proceeding. And I think I'm mostly preaching to the choir uh, on, uh, on that point. Uh, ameliorating some of their consequences, well, that's more con controversial, but uh, I, that's the direction I want to go. Now, Charlie quoted Will Rogers. I don't have Will Rogers here, but I do have David Frum. Uh, the shapers of the American mortgage finance system hoped to achieve the security of government ownership, the integrity of local banking, and the ingenuity of Wall Street. Instead, they got the ingenuity of government, the security of local banking, and the integrity of Wall Street. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better. As you may know, uh, David Frum was a speechwriter in the early part of the uh, George W. Bush uh, administration. That kind of stuff, I can't craft that. Uh, uh, you know, that's why he's a speechwriter, and I'm not. Do I have to stay at the microphone? Ah, okay. Uh, the other thing, of course, uh, follow the money. How can, you not, uh, how, how can you not say that? All right, I want to talk briefly about bubbles. Uh, I want to point out different consequences from different bubbles, and that's why this amelioration issue is important. Then you've been hearing about capital and leverage all day. Uh, maybe you really understand this stuff. What I want to try to do is give you some simple framework, some simple way of really understanding it. Maybe even if you understand it, this will allow you to explain it to a, your Uncle Charlie, uh, your Aunt Susan, maybe your son or daughter who's a Romance Languages major at University of California, Berkeley. This, I think, will really drive it home. Uh, the consequences, implications for prudential regulation and conclusion. All right, bubbles. Uh, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. They're easy to identify uh, after the fact, uh, and, you know, we can... You know, go through. David was talking about some of them. Uh, and I'm going to come back to the housing and the tech bubble in just a minute. But uh, during the rise, not so much. There's always a diversity of opinion. Why should we be 
believe only the bears. Uh, sure, of course, markets are not always right, but uh, they're generally right. And unless there are clear and substantial externalities, market failures, gee, we ought to be, uh, you know, going along with the markets. And why, of course, do we believe that government will be better at identifying bubbles in real time? Uh, and we could talk about market failure versus government failure. And David showed you data on that, uh, you know, breathtaking gold rise over the last decade. Is that a bubble? Uh, I don't know. You, you know, fist fights could probably break out over those who think it's a bubble versus those who think, no, 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 this is rational uh, hedging against da 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 da. So why would we want to go there? All right. But different bubbles have different consequences. These are uh, um, Federal Reserve uh, flow of funds data. Between year-end 1999, uh, year-end 2002, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, the aggregate stock market value falls by $7.5 trillion. Nobody likes $7.5 trillion. It's a big number. We went into a recession, but the financial sector didn't fall apart, uh, and we were able to come out of the recession uh, in reasonably good shape. Uh, the housing bubble losses, Charlie and I could uh, uh, arm wrestle over whether the um, Case-Shiller Index is the right way to be measuring house prices, but if 35% is the right number, if the uh, uh, FHFA Index is the right number, it's a smaller number, which is going to sort of strengthen my point. 35% um, uh, loss uh, from their peak, $7.7 trillion, pretty similar. Maybe a hundred and a half uh, of that is going to end up having being absorbed by the financial sector. Most of the losses being absorbed by households. Households are a little less rich uh, than they thought they were. That one and a half trillion dollar loss has torn apart the U.S. financial system, and along with it, uh, we've had the most serious recession either since the early 80s or since the 1930s, depending on uh, what what your measurement uh, scope is. So why the difference? Well, the losses, and this gets to a point that was raised, I think, as a question uh, in the uh, just previous session. The losses of the dot-com bubble were absorbed mostly by unleveraged vehicles, stocks, mutual funds, pension funds, household portfolios, unleveraged. The financial sector's losses uh, from that trillion and a half it's highly leveraged, uh, and that which means thin capital. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Uh, and, of course, that all arose because of highly leveraged borrowers. And uh, so it's that leverage that has made all the difference in the consequences of the two bubbles. All right. Now, that means I've got to tell you about capital and leverage. Uh, and first, what capital isn't. This is an inside the first is an inside joke for economists. It isn't the K in uh, a quantity production function. It isn't cash. It isn't money. It should not be confused with liquidity. Uh, the, the business press gets this all wrong over and over again. What capital is approximately, when we're talking about financial institutions, is approximately net worth or owner's equity, which means that it is the arithmetic difference between the value of the assets and the value of the fixed liabilities, which means measurement is going to be terrifically important. All right, why is it important? Because uh, why is capital important? We live in a, a, a legal 
system of limited liability for uh, corporate owners, the shareholders, which means then that the debt holders can't go after the, uh, the owners of the company for more than they've already invested. Uh, so capital, then, is the cushion, the buffer that protects the, uh, the debt holders against a fall in the uh, value of their assets. It's also a deterrent to risk-taking because the more capital, the more net worth, the more owner's equity there is, the more that the owners have to lose. Lenders should always uh, be worry about the adequacy of a borrower's capital. The private sector figured this out long, long ago, centuries ago. Uh, the more controversial uh, uh, issue, I'd be very happy to come back to this later, capital should be measured on the basis of market value accounting. All right. Uh, what is leverage? It's just the inverse. Uh, it's the ratio of assets to capital, and that means that when there's high leverage, there's a only a thin sliver of capital, which means a small percentage increase in the value of assets will yield a large percentage increase in the owner's equity, juicing returns. What, how do you do that? By having large uh, uh, high leverage, but it also works in the opposite direction. All right, now I'm going to show you some balance sheets. And, uh, you know, don't use this as an excuse to, oh, oh, got to check my email, got to look at my BlackBerry, please. Uh, I think this is going to help you explain this to that um, romance languages, uh, uh, niece or nephew or son or daughter. All right, I'm going to start somewhere else. A typical industrial company, uh, you know, everything stylized to 100. 100 in plant and equipment assets, 60 in bank loans and bonds, 40 in net worth, owner's equity, and we would describe this as having a 40% equity to assets um, uh, percentage or a leverage ratio of 2.5 to 1. The way to see this 2.5 to 1 is imagine that the value of the assets go up by 10. The plant has in, uh, uh, increased in value, but the bank loans haven't, uh, haven't gone up. Uh, so, by pure arithmetic, the assets go up by 10, the, um, the bank loans haven't changed, so the net worth has gone up by 10 as well. So, bank, the assets go up by 10%, the net worth has gone up by 25%. That's leverage. Just like we learned back in high school about having a fixed point, a fulcrum, and a board, a short end, a long end, 10% increase in the value of assets, a 25% increase in the value of net worth. But of course it works in the opposite direction as well. That 40 is sitting there as the protection for the the bank loans and the bonds. As that protection gets thinner, the bank lender, the bondholder gets more nervous. What do I do if there's a fall in the value of the assets? Again, the private sector figured this out long ago. They put restrictions in the lending agreement. They put covenants in the bond indenture to try to help protect them. I see prudential regulation as the public sector equivalent of those private sector uh, lending restrictions and bond indent uh, and uh, bond covenants. All right, a healthy solvent bank. 
100 in loans. Remember, a bank is exactly the opposite uh, for the, for, uh, of our normal intuition. For the bank, the uh, assets are the loans that it makes because it's going to get the uh, money paid back with interest, so it hopes. Uh, the deposits are its liabilities. It owes the money to the depositors. And uh, the eight is net worth or owner's equity. But in the financial world, we call it capital. Notice that this is a much more highly leveraged entity. It's only 8% capital. It's got leverage of 12.5 to 1. And again, the same idea. The loans go up by 10, and uh, so a 10% increase in loans, but a uh, a 125% increase in the value of net worth. It operates on the downside. Fannie and Freddie, 25 to 1 just on their balance sheet. If you include the credit risk on their mortgage-backed securities, it was closer to 60 or 70 or 80 to 1. Lehman or uh, Bear, 33 to 1. By the way, there are copy my, my slides didn't make it into the package, but there are hard copies of these slides uh, at the front desk on the ground floor uh, if, if you want them. Uh, to me, the big mystery is why did anybody lend to a Bayer or a layman at year-end 97? There's no deposit insurance. There's no access to the Fed. Why would anybody lend? Uh, just to show you, I didn't make these numbers up. There are the year-end 2007 uh, numbers, and you'll see 3% uh, uh, ratios of equity as a percentage of assets for uh, Bayer, for uh, Lehman, for Morgan Stanley, 3.1 for Merrill Lynch, 3.8 for Goldman. Um, leverage also works at the individual level, as uh, Charlie and David had uh, have indicated. There's a 5 to 1 leverage ratio. We go to uh, 33 to 1 for that 3% uh, down payment uh, individual. And just to remind you, what does an insolvent in financial institution look like? And I, you know, when I had to deal with the savings and loan debacle of 20 plus years ago, I saw more than my share of, of those kinds of things. All right, what are the consequences? Well, if you've got an insolvent institution, the assets are inadequate to cover the liabilities, uh, and you can see how this can cause runs, refusals to deal, as the in this world of limited liability, the creditors fear, I'm not going to be able to get 100 cents back on the dollar. Uh, I better get there first, and that's what leads to runs and refusals uh, to lend. All right, the implications for prudential regulation. Uh, Capital and leverage are crucial. Measuring is crucial. Um, I'll be, again, I'll be happy to talk about uh, what to do when markets are thin. We, it's clear moral hazard behavior is real. It's real in the private sector, but it's also real in the regulatory sector. Uh, implications, I think we do need prudential regulation of uh, banks, insurance companies, defined benefit pension funds, money market mutual funds, prevent runs. And look, there are unsophisticated claimants out there who really get taken to the cleaners. Uh, and I think we, as a social, uh, you know, social, uh, uh, social system, should be taking care of, of such uh, individuals. But also we've got systemic risk problems out there where you've – and we just saw that, uh, I think uh, – uh, to a great extent, and, and runs. Runs are a real phenomenon. Uh, here are the key uh, uh, pieces of prudential regulation. Uh, 
you know, first there is risk-based capital, Charlie's idea for, uh, and based on Don Morgan's uh, work, okay, uh, fine, and include uh, sub-debt, uh, cocoa, contingent capital, other things go along with it. All right, conclusion. What might have ameliorated the consequences of the housing bubble? Well, clearly, better prudential regulation. If we'd had regulators looking at and asking hard questions of banks, of thrifts, of bank holding companies like Citi, of those big five investment banks, of Fannie and Freddie, of even money market mutual funds, uh, a lot less uh, would have happened. If we had had less regulatory reliance on credit rating agencies, something that uh, Charlie mentioned earlier, if we'd had better monetary policy in that crucial 2002-2004 period, and some better attention to borrower information uh, asymmetries. That is not a major part of the story. Uh, There are a lot of people who, uh, Peter talked about this uh, in the previous session, that, uh, you know, the the poor befuddled borrower who got taken to the cleaners uh, by a, you know, a greedy, shifty uh, lender. There is a little bit of that going on, and even a little bit is too much, but that's not the major story, and don't let anybody tell you that it was the major story. That was not the major story. All, but all of these would have moderated the size of the bubble as well as its, its consequences. And so understanding financial institutions is important. Runs are a real phenomenon. We, we learn to our sorrow. They are not restricted to depository institutions. They can attack other financial institutions as well. Understanding leverage, understanding capital is terrifically important, and good public policy depends crucially on these understandings. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here. Okay, we're, we're running a touch late, but I think there's been a great panel. I'd like to take a few questions from the audience. Questions for the panelists. We left them. They fell asleep with the lights. Yes. Yeah. Oh, ah, there's, a, there's a brave soul. Yeah. Um, I guess anyone of you could take this. Um, I'm Paul Finkel. Why did the Why did the Fed approve the SIV structure for the uh, large banks, and then when they took uh, when these assets ran into trouble and proved to be worth much less, why did the Fed allow these uh, to be reabsorbed by the uh, major bank holding company? Oh, I, I can. I'll try to give a short answer to that. Should I? Sure. Um, First of all, remember that there were major capital standards reforms associated with securitization in the early 2000s that uh, actually encouraged the creation of a lot of the securitization conduits the way they were structured. There were a lot of strange distortions embedded in those, in particular um, actually creating incentives for external enhancement rather than internal enhancement for these for these things. So there, there were a lot of uh, having I've been working on securitization for over a decade as a researcher and there were a lot of things in those regulations that I thought were quite strange that I think actually made things worse. Uh, the, and I don't have a good story for why that happened but I would point out to you that not only did those things happen but that in 2006 this credit ratings law that was passed what was one of its main goals? Believe it or not they thought their credit rating agencies were being too tough on mortgage-backed securitizations. 
And so they wanted to make sure to put pressure on them not to compete too hard to be tough. And I'm not joking. I, I issued two letters with the SEC complaining about that law. But the fact that that was passed by a Democratic Congress under the Bush administration and the fact that the Fed participated in those capital standards that you're talking about and the whole mentality toward the housing industry, in my view, which was the big growth area in this whole market, was do anything to make affordable housing grow. And I, I think that was the 800-pound gorilla in, in every one of the rooms in Washington, that, and nobody had the guts to stop it. Yes. Hello? Okay. Yeah. Uh, my name is Matthew Pitsy. I'm a small business owner. The question is for Mr. Malpass. I was curious to hear your comments on Japan. I know you skipped over it, but before, I guess I wanted to ask you why you think we're so different from Japan, considering China and the developing world are making so many more products that we're buying, and they're making them more and more cheaply. So that's one pressing type of deflation. The second one is with the banks being upside down, and the monetary easing is to basically create inflation eventually to solve their problem. So they're basically fighting deflation. Prices have not come down because the banks are not marking to market. So if they were to mark to market, you'd have huge deflation. So the monetary easing is to, to relieve that deflation as far as I understand it. And that to me is very similar to Japan. I don't, I'm not an expert on Japan, so I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, so uh, the... Japan got into deflation after a long period of very strong yen. So price of gold was falling all through the early 90s and then stayed low, and we're talking really low. So it would be like in the U.S. if, if uh, it, we had gold down at $100 uh, an ounce. That would give you some sense. And then other commodity prices had followed those down. So you had a source, an original source, of deflation coming from the strength of the yen. They changed the value of the yen under pressure from the U.S. Uh, to massively strong, and that was a deflationary impetus. Uh, and that showed up then in negative CPI. Um, and uh, they're also there, uh, I don't know if I said it on the slide, but remember their monetary policy response was much slower than in the U.S. So in uh, 1991, as they fell into a recession and the stock market had crashed, they were just going slowly down in their interest rates, not following a John Taylor rule or, or something. And our Fed what has been uh, quicker in responding. So I guess the point of that slide was simply to say, while people keep fixating on us somehow being at a deflation risk, I don't I don't see that. We're uh, Charlie's done a really good paper showing that there, you know, there's there's an inflation risk and a deflation risk, and they're both lo both low risk. They're in the tails, uh, and what the Fed seems to be ignoring is the the risk that we get quite a bit of inflation out of this. I don't know if I summarized that right. One so that's that's my thought. One more question here. Uh, Eric Stein from Eaton Vance. This question is for David Malpass. I have a lot of sympathy with your view that the Fed uh, should stop QE2, but how realistic do you think that is, uh, given you know the speeches we've heard from Bernanke and Dudley? I know there's some members, including uh, President Plasser, who's speaking next, that might be of that view, but how likely do you think it is for them to actually not do the full $600 billion? I think it's 
it's quite possible. I think there should be a debate, uh, and the Fed should not say, look, uh, this is our sole business. Uh, there is, a, you know, an, a national interest in having good monetary policy. And the reason it can be done is I don't think it's very effective, meaning they're, they're buying they, – the Fed hasn't claimed that they're causing throughput through the banking system. They're, they've been explicit that the transmission mechanism of what they're doing is through – by having the yield curve flatten some, well, that's a, that occurred and we got a lot, little bit of a stimulus out of it and now it's steepening itself again. So that part's over. And then this idea that the stock market went up, son, that's just not not a big uh, benefit. And so as they wind it down, I don't think they'll be able to claim that it's the end of the world if they uh, slow it down. It, further, um, Kevin Warsh did a piece a week and a half ago in the Wall Street Journal where he laid out criteria, really, for winding it down. You know, the FOMC in its statement said that they were going to revisit the issue regularly. Well, the, everyone took it at the time. Goldman Sachs was out saying, yeah, five trillion yen of, uh, dollars of, uh, of uh, uh, quantitative easing is what they mean. Uh, but the Fed's been clear that that could mean that they would uh, reduce the amount uh, that, they, that they were using. So I think the Fed responding to the data, the Philly Fed was stronger today. You know, the, the jobless claims are coming down. So they've got enough data points to um, maybe b wind this down. Uh, down. Okay. Do the other two panelists want 30 seconds to respond to that question or any other? Well, if you're, if you're offering. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, um, I was at this uh, 100th anniversary celebration uh, Almost all the Fed presidents and governors were there, and also their research directors and a lot of the senior vice presidents about 10 days ago. And while it would be inappropriate to mention any one person's private comments to me, what became very clear from my discussions with those people was that the Fed was deeply divided on this issue. And uh, my own calculations, weighted by experience in monetary economics, and having actually done research and years of knowledge of monetary economics, the Fed was against it. That's my own weighting system. Uh, um, and, and what that tells me is that people on the inside need the support of people on the outside to strengthen their positions. Lawrence? Aren't they three years too early on the 100th it, anniversary? It was the 100th anniversary of the idea for the... Oh, the idea. Which was <laughs> Paul Warburg's idea first uh, put together at Jekyll Island in 1910. Alexander Hamilton didn't get any credit for that? Okay. He uh, right. Uh, I want to address that sieve uh, uh, regulatory uh, issue. I mean, that gets to the whole uh, heart of the just the falling down of prudential regulation uh, through uh, up until about 2008. And I don't understand it. I thought, having gone through the savings and loan debacle of the uh, late 1980s, the legislation that came out of uh, that debacle, that we had learned the lesson, the importance of of capital, the importance of measuring stuff better, the importance of early action, uh, uh, prompt corrective action, all those things I thought we had learned, and somehow we went brain dead. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we had this massive national brain freeze starting in the early years of the uh, 21st century, and we are paying a huge, huge price. I want to thank our panel panelists very much for this this last panel.